This is a recording from the University of Leicester. So, the majority of you have read the material, so you, so you said. So, who wants to summarise what the material's about? Interest, exactly, and that would be a summary of the entire module as well. But what are the two types of interest? Simple and compound, exactly. I have a habit of finishing people's sentences, and I'm really going to try and stop doing that. So I just give you the answer. Simple and compound. So what is the difference between simple interest and compound interest? Say it again. Okay, so simple interest. Interest does not um, interest. So the difference between that and compound interest is that interest in compound interest earns interest. So which one do we operate with in the real world? You've all got bank accounts that pay interest, I would hope. Probably very small amounts of interest at the moment. But what sort of interest are these bank accounts paying? Compound. Compound, exactly. Compound is the one that is actually the real one, that everyone understands, that everyone sort of intuitively knows what's going on. And indeed, compound is really what this entire module is about. So we're talking about simple interest really only in the introduction. I don't think we mentioned this at all in the rest of the book, you know, beyond chapter one and two. So what we were saying, for those of you that have found that just now, is that there are two types of interest, and you probably knew this anyway from reading the material. You might well have known this without reading the material, but please read the material. Compound interest is the one that you'll be familiar with in the real world. Your bank accounts pay compound interest. Interest earns interest. The alternative to that is simple interest, which no one really uses at all. But we mention it for completeness, really. So what is the problem with simple interest? If interest doesn't earn interest, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that from the bank's point of view? Exactly. It is open to exploitation. So what we're saying is, let's consider two investors. We've got investor one, who's got £100. So investor one can invest in a rate of simple interest of, let's say, 3% or something like that. And after one year, he's got how much? £103. So, after two years, how much has he got? £106, exactly. All he's done is earned another £3 on the original £100 invested. The fact that there is £103 in there doesn't matter because the 3 has come from interest. From the previous year, and interest doesn't earn interest. Now let's consider investor two. Now he or she invests £100 and after one year is going to have 103 But rather than just leaving it there, what he does is withdraw it and then comes back again and he deposits £103 there. So that essentially that £103 is all capital now. So after one year, how much has he got? 
six plus. Yeah, he's got a number that's um, more than 106, that's the point, yeah? So, somehow, he's managed to exploit the system. So, in, for orders the bank, in order for the bank to keep control of simple interest and, you know, who owes what, they need to really have a lot of information and they need, they need to administer the bank accounts in huge detail, which is costly. It'd be cheaper for them, to be honest, just to pay interest on interest. Yeah? So the general equation then for simple interest, let's have a capital amount C invested for N years at an interest rate of I. What does the growth over N years of this capital amount C look like? C, one, N, I. Yeah, okay. So compound interest though, is the one that we use because the money that's in the bank just earns interest. It doesn't matter how that money got in the bank, it's just there. You don't need to keep a record of which bit was interest and which bit was capital. So, for an investor investing £100, after a year at 3%, this has gone to, which is going to be 103 as well. So after the second year, how much are they going to have in there? Well, tell me how to work it out rather than what the number is. Times by... Times by 1.03. Again. Okay? So it's as if this bit was just a capital reinvested. So this is the second piece of that simple interest investor I was talking about before. Okay? So in general then, what is the form of this equation for compound interest growth? To the power of n. That's like crowdsourcing. I just know what words I need to hear and I just listen from however many people until I hear the right words and write them down. So, collectively you knew that. Individually I hope you knew that. So, these are the two, two different ones here. As I said, this is the one that really matters. Now, is there a connection, a mathematical connection between these two? C, 1 plus I to the N. Could we expand that in a series expansion? Yes. Yeah, and what would we get? We get C times NI plus terms of order I squared and above. So what does that tell you? Well, first of all, what does this bit remind you of? Exactly. So what this says is that the growth you get under compound interest for small values of I is very similar to the growth you get for simple interest. Yeah? Does that make sense? For small values of I, you can ignore that. If I is 0.001%, square 0.001%, it's tiny. You can ignore it. So that makes physical sense, doesn't it? If interest doesn't earn interest, if you're in a situation in which interest earned is really small anyway, then the two become approximately equal. So that is an important point about this module. Mathematically, it's quite easy, but what I'm going to be asking you to do time and time again is to kind of interpret what's going on in a sort of a physical or economical way. So how many of you have got any kind of background in physics? What's your background? Undergrad or A-level or...? Sorry? Undergrad. Excellent. Anyone else got undergrad physics? 
Obviously, that's a question only to the MSE students. A few of you, and that's good. How many of you, you undergrads, have got A-level physics? Good. Lots of you. Now, I've got A-level physics, and I've got undergrad physics, and I've kind of got PhD physics as well. And what I found is that ability to interpret the real world really helps. This isn't just about equations that just are equations. These are about equations that mean things. And you need to be able to look at an equation and interpret it. So those math students, if you haven't got that skill already, try and learn that skill. Because in the real world, that is a skill that someone will pay for. No one really is going to pay for the skill of proving something, unless you're an academic. But interpreting, using, and being a bit kind of hand-wavy and dirty with the maths is really what matters in the world, real world. So I don't want to sort of put a downer on your career so far, but really try and understand what's going on with the maths rather than just memorise equations. And you'll see that time and time again. So that's simple and compound interest. Probably I'm not going to mention simple interest again. Which is a shame because it's quite easy, isn't it? So, what else did we learn in these chapters? Really, that was a summary of chapter one, wasn't it? Is that a question or a stretched arm? <laughs> stretched arm, that's okay. Feel free to ask questions, by the way, or stretch your arm. But it may fall into an your question if you stretch your arm. So, now, accumulation factors. What are accumulation factors? Not you, you always answer. Anybody else? What's an accumulation factor? I've already written one down. An accumulation factor is a number that you multiply, i.e. it's a factor, in order to see how much your investment has grown under compound interest. So, an accumulation factor... Oh. I mentioned before there's a lot of notation in this module. Some of it is going to be very standard, and some of it is a little bit non-standard and open to exploitation. I think accumulation factors, either of those, is fair game. But, you know, you should be able to interpret that as an accumulation factor. What does it actually mean? What if there was an exam question for three marks, two marks, that said, define what I mean by that or that, what would your answer be? You can answer now if you want to, since the others were silent. Another? 1.5. Uh, one plus. Yeah. One plus. The interest rate. Okay, we'll call it I. Yes. Yeah. All those. Uh, uh, power, first of Yeah, to the power of power N. Okay, so that is what it is mathematically equal to. That's not quite what I asked. I asked, what is it? So, what I want is more of an intuitive kind of understanding or an under sort of demonstration you understand what this means in words. That's perfectly right. But we'll come back to why that's right in a minute. Once someone else has defined it in words, an accumulation factor A0N is the van... Yeah? Uh, the Okay, so it's the amount you've invested plus the money you've earned on that investment. Okay, a, sort of a, a tighter way of saying it, an easier way of saying it, would be A0N is an accumulation factor which represents 
the value of a unit investment made at time zero after n years. Okay? That's what I mean by defined state. It's all about understanding, not about memorizing expressions. Now, it's true that these two things are equal because it's compound interest. So, if I had invested this thing at a known constant rate of interest, I, then it's clear that after n years, my unit investment, unit investment because there's a 1 in front of this thing here, has grown to that value. Okay? So, I like to draw timelines as well in the lectures, and you'll see lots of these things. So, this is a timeline that's a line that shows time, obviously. Now, the way I would represent this on a timeline is as follows. We know it's accumulation from time zero up to time n of a unit investment. So I've made an investment of one there, and it's grown to value one plus i to the n there. Okay? So we'll see these things time and time again. So if that's not clear, it probably will become clear after a few lectures. Now, what's the principle of consistency? Anyone rem remember what they read? And I don't want an equation. What is the spirit of the principle of consistency? If you like time, you make one investment one through time. Yeah. So like if only zero, Okay, so what you're saying is the principle of consistency states that the accumulation of an investment from time zero to n is identically equal to the product of the accumulations of every subinterval between those or within that range. So what I mean is that if I invest one there for n years, we know we end up with one plus i to the power of n. But I could have invested one there up to T1. And then I could have invested whatever that is up to T2, up to T3, etc. So what that means is I've got A0 T1 times A T1 T2, A T2 T3. A, T, 3, to N. Is that right? Yeah. And that is equal to that there. Okay. So that's what I mean by the principle of consistency. I can break an investment over lots of different subintervals and it will still grow to the same value. So why is that important from a sort of a physical sense, from an economic sense? Why is that a useful thing? If that wasn't true, then an investor could withdraw money, cleverly put it back in, withdraw money again, put it back in, and end up with more money than someone that just put it in there, left it for n years, and withdrew it at the end. So it's a similar reason for, well, it's the same reason why we rejected simple interest. If that weren't true, life would be far too complicated to administer bank accounts. Okay? So... This is all about growing going forwards, accumulating money under compound interest. Can you guess what I'm going to talk about next? This is about going forwards in time. I can go backwards in time. And what's that called? 
discounting it. Exactly. So, <coughs> why is that useful? That's useful because it may be that I have a bill to pay in a number of years. Let's just say after three years, I owe someone a thousand pounds. If I've got a bank account that will pay I, let's say it's 2% per annum, and I know that's guaranteed, how much do I need to invest now in order to meet that £1,000 liability that I have after three years? Or how do I work it out? Uh, here, I need to invest, I think we're going to get... 1,000? Yep. Divided. Divided by... By yeah. one plus three. Yeah. Uh, the power of n of three. Yeah, in this case. Can everyone see why that's true? Because that would have grown to an amount divided by 1.02 to the power of three times 1.02 to the power of three. They cancel, it would have grown to a thousand pounds. So this is why bank accounts and investments are so useful. It means that if I have a liability, I must pay some money in the future. Rather than ignoring it, I could be clever about it and say, well, okay, I've got some spare cash now, but it's less than £1,000, so I can invest this spare cash now and exploit the fact that someone's going to pay me interest. Yeah? So, what we say is that the present value of the unit investment due in any year's time is going to be 1, 1 plus i to the minus n. So what you would have noticed here is that 1 plus i crops up time and time again in, in the interest rate of stuff. So we call that new. It looks like v, and you can write v if you want, but it's actually a Greek symbol, new. Okay? So new is going to be our discount factor. So, that is an n-year discount factor, new to the power of minus n. Um, yeah, that's right. Or have I got that wrong? I think new is that, isn't it? So that is my discount factor. Okay, so we define new to be 1 over 1 plus i such that the discounted value of £1,000 over three years is going to be that. Everyone happy with this? Everyone keeping up with this? So how do I connect discount values to accumulated values? Anyone? How do I connect um, discounted values to accumulated values? Or discount factors to accumulated factors? Uh, no, not quite. Well, no, not at all. It's the inverse, reciprocal, yeah. One over. Because I know that if that is my discount factor, I know that that is my one-year accumulation factor, it's pretty clear that that's true. So, A0N is equal to uh, new the minus n. 
Why is that true? Because mu <coughs> is equal to 1 plus i to the minus 1, pulls the power of minus n, and that gets me 1 plus i to the n. Okay? That is that. Everyone happy with that. <coughs> so accumulation factors take my investment forwards in time. Discount factors bring my investments backwards in time. Everyone happy with that? Yeah? And this is why we call this time value of money. <coughs> Under investments, the value of money increases going forwards. Because, of course, we always assume that compound interest is positive. Why can we assume that? Why would we never say that compound interest was negative? It's a physical argument, or a practical argument. No one would invest. Exactly. You are free to make this investment. There's a whole load of banks out there for you to put your money in. If Lloyds were saying, okay, I'll give you 1.2%, HSBC were giving you 0.3%, and Santander were giving you minus 0.3%, you wouldn't opt to do that, would you? You'd always go for the positive one. Because what does a negative interest rate mean to you? You pay money in, and it gets taken away from you. So you might as well do what? Spend it, well, possibly, or what? <laughs> Hide it under your mattress, for example. Yeah. So we always assume combined interest is positive. And that's kind of inherent in what we do. We don't often explicitly state that, but it's kind of implicit. Okay? Everyone happy with that? Everyone keeping up with that? So what else is there to say? Now, actually, this thing here, this isn't the most general form of the accumulation factor. The most general form I could have is something like this. <coughs> so what does that equal in terms of 1 plus i? 1 plus i, power of t2 minus t1. Everyone happy with that, okay? Good. So, what we've spoken about so far has had a fixed... Well, we've talked about I. We haven't really defined what I is. It's implicit what I is in there. It's the interest rate per annum. It's the compound interest rate per annum, isn't it? Now, the material talks about that IH. We'll come back to this in later chapters. But can anyone state what that is? It's the nominal rate, but what does that actually mean? Well, maybe I'm confusing you, because later, in later chapters, we call it IH. In this chapter, we call it that. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, what does that mean? It's a nominal rate, but what does that actually mean? Yeah, so this is the nominal rate IP is connected to the effective rate by over that period the effective rate is going to be 1 over P times I to the P. Yeah? Now why do we bother introducing that? Well, we'll see in a bit that it's linked to the force of interest, the sort of a continuously compounding interest. But from my point of view as an examiner, this is really good because I can try and trip you up in the exam. 
I can give you a question and I can say the effective interest rate is 3% per annum. And by that, I mean I is 0.03. Or I could say the nominal interest rate converted quarterly is 3% per annum. If I said the nominal interest rate converted quarterly was 3%, what that means is I4 equals 0.03. When you do sort of um, calculations, you don't really use nominal rates. You always need to convert to an effective rate. So this is the trick. This is where you lose marks in an exam if you sort of don't keep on top of it. <coughs> so what that means is I4 is 0.03 actually means in each quarter of a year, the value of I is that. Okay? That is the effective rate by this definition here. Everyone vaguely happy with that. So let's draw a diagram, because it always helps to draw a diagram. So this is naught up to 1. We have... Is that a question? Yeah. No, this is the different one. I'm going to explain this now. This means quarterly, this 4 here, which means that 4 means it's 1 over 4. This is different to being a subscript H to a superscript bracket P. Well, bear with me, we'll come to this in a minute. So we have. 0 to 1. This is our time period here. Okay? Now, if we have I4, uh, that means that every quarter I'm telling you what the interest rate is. But that is tied up with some maths. The nominal rate I quarter, let's say it's 12% per annum, actually means that the effective rate over each one and a quarter, one and a half, three quarters, is 0.12 divided by four. Over this one, it's 0.12 divided by four, <coughs> over that one, and over that one. Okay. So how can I connect that to an annual interest rate? Or the interest rate that goes all the way from there to there. How can I connect it? Principle of? Consistency. Yeah, exactly. The principle of consistency tells me if I invest something there, accumulate it to there, keep it in, invest it to there, to there, to there, it's exactly the same as investing it from there up to there. So, if I invest something for, if I invest one, for this quarter of a year here, I know that the effective interest rate per quarter is 0.12 divided by 4. Yeah? So, that means that after a quarter of a year, this 1 has been accumulated up to, um, let's put it this way, 1 plus 0.12 to the power of 4. So that gets me to there. Now, what about if I want to get it to there? How can I amend this expression here? Square. Yep. How about if I want to get it to there? Q. 
qubit, and I can go to that the power of 4. So, I know that that's true. Now, if I want to work out an effective annual interest rate, what can I equate that to under the principle of consistency? One plus yeah, exactly, one plus five. Now, we'll come back to this in later chapters, but if you ever see a nominal rate, you must always convert it to an effective rate. And the way to do it is to invoke the principle of consistency, which boils down to this expression. 1 plus i equals 1 plus i to the p over p to the power of p. Okay? That doesn't mean much to you now, I know, but we'll do some examples um, in the problem class that will make it clear. Okay? Now. Yeah? Why did we introduce nominal, nominal interest in the first place? Why did we? Yes. Because I'm about to tell you. So, what this means is, is that if I want to break up my region into smaller and smaller pieces, then P gets bigger. Okay? So the limit as P goes to infinity is effectively what? What would it represent in the real world? What does it mean that I'm paying interest every instant? A force. It's a force of interest, yeah. So rather than, if P goes upwards, if P tends to infinity, rather than paying interest on an investment every quarter, I'm paying interest every minute, every second, every fraction of a second. Effectively, I'm paying interest continuously. And that is the force of interest. Okay, so you would have seen this in the material as well. Let's rub this out. <laughs> so, what we have is the limit of P goes to infinity of I to P is equal to delta, where delta is the force of interest. So, if I've got a timeline here, I told you I keep drawing these things. So what is the effective interest that's been earned on an investment on a tiny increment of width dt? It should be the, ten, the tension of the interest rate, but it tends to do how much it tends to grow. Say it again. Is it the real? We're boiling down to an interval. <laughs> yeah. So, I was sort of an interest paid per unit time. So, IP was an interest paid per unit, whatever P. Yeah? So, what is the effective interest earned under force of interest, so a continuously compounding interest, on an interval of length dt? Nearly, well, we're going to integrate over everything, but on this tiny little increment here, it's just going to be delta dt. Yeah, that is the interest earned over this little bit here. Because we know the effective interest rate is IP1 over P. P has gone to infinity, which means that this P, this IP has gone to delta. 
And this has just become, this one end of P has just become a tiny little increment of width dt. Is that clear? Ish? Ish. Okay. So, the interest or the accumulation earned over an entire region of length naught up to t, if it's formed from lots of these things here, is going to be the integral of delta dt. Okay? So we're adding up all these little increments. Right. So we'll come back to this, I promise. What I'm trying to do is sort of motivate why we've got all these different definitions of interest rate. Yeah? So, let's, for a second, talk about payment... No, let's talk about um, discrete payments. So let's have a payment stream such that we have one here, one here, two here, I don't know, four here, at time one, two, three, four. Now what is the present value at time t equals zero of that payment stream? In symbols, what's the present value? This one here has got a present value of what? One. New. What? This one here has got this one here. It's got a present value of one. New two. This one here, two. New three. This one here, four. New four. So this is kind of what we're going to be doing time and time again in this module going forwards. We will have a payment stream, because of course the real world doesn't have investment and business opportunities that consist of a single payment. It has investment and business opportunities that are streams of payments, and we need to make sense of the stream of payments. So we, in a sense, can come up with a single representative number for this stream of payments at a particular interest rate i at time t equals zero. Yeah? I can give it a single number if I wanted to. A single representative number at that point there. So physically, what does that mean? <coughs> Let's just say this PV is going to be, I don't know, two pounds. Let's just say the interest rate was such that if we did this, we ended up with two. What does that physically mean if the present value of this payment stream here were 2, what does that mean? That if you invest 2 pounds at 0, you get the stream of payments. Yeah. Well, it, well, yeah, nearly. It means if I invest 2 pounds here, I know that under this compound interest rate here, <laughs> this 2 pounds is growing such that I'm able to cover this stream of payments going forwards. Okay? So, this stream of payments is equal to 2 at this point here. Okay? So, what if I wanted the present value... I don't know why I might want this, but what if I wanted the present value um, here of this stream of payments? How could I work that out? 
So the present value at time 2 is going to be equal to what? It's going to be equal to 1. What am I going to do with this 1 to get it to there? I need to accumulate it. So rather than, well, rather than new to a 1, it's going to be... New to minus 1. So I've taken that 1 to there. Now what about this payment here? What's its present value at the time it's going to be paid? It's just its value. It's just 1, yeah. Plus 1. What's the present value of this one in the future? It's going to go backwards. Two. Two. New. One. And this one up here is going to be four new squares. So I can come up with a single representative value of a stream of payments at any point I want within the period that is being paid or after, or before. Let's just say that this value was 2. Let's just say I was such that that value was 2. How could I connect the present value at time t equals 0 to the present value at time t equals 2? How could I do that? Would these things be connected? Would they be connected? Sorry? Consistent. Sort of print with consistency, yeah. But what we're saying is that these stream of payments here have a value P, V, naught here. The same stream of payments have a value here of P, V, 2. So, the present value of naught is equal to the present value of 2. Well, that's not true. How can we modify this? By discounting, yeah? <coughs> discounted by two, yeah. Yeah. Alternatively, what about if I wanted to put the new on this side over here? New to the minus two. So can you see what's going on here? We can have a stream of payments stretching out over time, and at any point, under compound interest, I can say that stream of payments has an equivalent at this time of whatever. And I can work out that whatever from discounting or accumulating things that have gone after it or before it. Now, at another time, I can work out the equivalent statement. And these two present values must be connected. So I can move around in time, effectively. It's like time travel for investments, is what we're saying here. Does that make sense? That's a really sort of powerful idea in this module. That... The time value of money enables me to move around time and give equivalent cash flows. £3 now is the equivalent to £2.57 yesterday under the action of compound interest. So, a payment stream stretching off to the future has got a present value of a million pounds now, but it's got a present value of whatever number 10 years in the future. And I can move these things around if I know what the value of interest is going to be. Okay? So that we shall come back to. And that is kind of how we end up with the very last statement on the summary of chapter 2. There's a bit of a... I don't know if you've got it in front of you. But it says... I shall, you won't be able to see it, of course. But it says, the value of time 1 of a cash flow 
discounted equals the value of time two of a cash flow discounted by a different distance. Essentially, what it's saying is that if I have a value of a cash flow, a single representative value at this point here, and another single representative value at a point there, I can discount that to time t equals zero, I can discount that to time t equals zero, and since they're a number which represents the same thing but in different periods of time, discounting them back to the same point must mean that they're equal. Yeah? And with that, I'm able to move things around. Now, one thing that crops up quite a lot and confuses students quite a lot is the alternative to discrete cash flows. Now, what do you think the alternative to a, dis a discrete cash flow is? A continuous cash flow. So here, this mess here has got discrete payments. One there, one there, two there, four there. What if I had an investment that rather than paying a lump at the end of every year or the end of every month or whatever, was actually paying a continuous amount? And the continuous amount we're going to call rho, and it doesn't have to be a fixed continuous amount. This amount can be a function of time. Okay. So, what is the total amount paid continuously between time t equals t and t equals n, say, if rho is being paid continuously within those periods? What's the total amount? Nothing to do with time value of money at the moment, just total amount paid in. Do you understand the setup here? We have got an income stream which every instant is paying me an amount of money. And we define the rate of payment to be rho. And since the rate of payment can go up, it can go down, it depends on time, we have rho as a function of t. Now the total amount paid over n years is the integral between naught and n dt. Okay. So that's got nothing to do with the time value of money. That's just saying, this is my rate of payment. So physics people, what do you understand by the word rate? Rate implies uh, per, per time. So dimensionally, I need to multiply by time in order to get the total amount. Yeah? So that is the total amount paid. Now, that's got nothing to do with the time value of money. What is the complication here? Why can't I just say, well, that amount there, I'm going to discount it by an amount t1. That amount here, I'm going to discount it by an amount t2. Why can't I do things like that in this case? There are, yeah, every instant has got one of these. I can't write this down. I can't write the equivalent statement here, can I, if it's continuous payment. I need to do it every second every tenth of a second, every millisecond. I'm going to have an infinite expansion. So what's, what's the limit? This is A-level calculus, essentially. We're going to need to invoke some sort of calculus thing here now, aren't we? So, what do we do? How can I work out the present value of an amount paid there? Now, let's rub this out to make it clear. So we're going to have a payment stream for n years at a rate, rho t, 
depending on time. Yeah. I am going to have an amount, a little tiny increment placed at time t, but of width dt. I want the present value of that amount paid at t equals naught. So the present value of t equals naught of that amount paid at time t equals t. How can I do that? How can I work that out? Ultimately, I'll integrate them. Ultimately, I'm going to add up every single increment. But at the moment, I just want this single increment's value. Kind of. You're along the right track, anyway, for the, for the entire thing. We're just looking at this tiny increment here. So, first question. In that tiny increment of width dt, how much money does, am I being paid? Anybody? No, not quite. Just in this tiny little <coughs> instantaneous increment. Well, technically zero if dt were zero itself, but dt has got a finite but admittedly very small width. If the payment rate is rho per unit time, then the amount paid in the time of that dt is rho dt. Rho is my payment rate, my payment per unit time. So in a small increment of width dt, the amount paid is going to be rho times dt. Yeah? What is the present value of that increment sent back to times t equals naught? How can I work that out? <coughs> How do I work out present value, sir? Yeah, that's my new thing. Everyone's saying integrate, or a few of you are mumbling integrate. So, that is the answer to the following question. How do I work out the present value of an entire payment stream between t equals 0 and t equals n? The point is, is that there's nothing special about this increment at time t of width dt. I could have another increment at time, I don't know, let's call it time s, also width dt. But also has an expansion like this, well, a, you know, a, a value like this, but with values s nest there. <coughs> if I want the total present value, what do I do? I integrate between naught and n. So let's summarise. If I want the present value of a discrete set of payments, I discount every single one. If I want the present value of a continuously paying income stream, I need to be careful to look at integration. Question. Uh, what if the increment is not seen? Uh, if is not seen? Well, this is the mathematical aspect of it, isn't it? I'm saying let's consider, this is capital, this is like the fundamental theory of capitalism. Let's consider an increment with dt, and then technically we're taking the limit as dt approaches zero. But this is the sort of the physics the sort of the hand waving way of justifying it. So, in general, then, go on. I have a question. Yeah. What's wrong with the So you want me to go there? No, like from T to 
from that? D plus dt. Okay, what would I write down? D integral of d plus integral. I'd write the integral of t, t plus dt, of rho t, dt, why dt though? Because I'm, dt is my increment, which is a sub-interval of the region that I'm looking at. If I'm only going up one unit of dt, then there's only one thing to add. The fact is that this dt here is a tiny little increment of the entire range between 0 and n. This dt here is equal to the distance you're integrating over anyway. So that's not an integral, that's back to being discrete, in a sense. So we'll rub them out and then we'll write that down. So, in general, when you have cash flows, you could have discrete cash flows or continuous cash flows. The present value of a cash flow stream is then going to look something like this. Norton n rho t mu t dt plus the sum of c t i mu t i i or 1 up to, I don't know, in principle they could be infinite. Everyone happy with that? Yeah? Is it time? Is that what you're thinking? Okay. That's just saying that if I've got a cash flow of time ti, for example, I've got 1 at time 1, I've got 1 at time 2, I've got 2 at time 3, then I can re represent that if I wanted to by c at ti, and I'm summing over all of them. So that is sort of what the whole module is going to be about, making sense and interpreting these present value statements. Okay? That's all I want to say. This is a recording from the University of Leicester. For more information, please visit le.ac.uk.